Hey, now we're going to move into the scripture reading for the day. The scripture passage for today um, is Philippians 2. We're going to be reading just verses 12 and 13. Um, for those of you who are looking forward in your Bible, you can use the table of contents. Not all the pages are the same. It should be around 1,780-something um, for those who have Bibles like this. If you don't have a Bible or if you know somebody who needs a Bible also, take one of the pew Bibles, and it's our gift as a church to those who want to read God's Word and be able to ask questions. Um, so again, the passage for today is Philippians 2. We'll be reading verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2 from 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. That's where the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. I can tell you're excited. Short passage means short sermon, right? I'm sorry, I could have written a 200-page book on those two verses. So if you do have questions while I'm talking, uh, we're going to plan to do AMA after service today. There should be a phone number up on the slides. Text your questions to that number, and I will reframe them so I can talk about the things I want to talk about. <laughs> now, uh, this is a question that's going to sound like a trick question. I promise you uh, it is not. How many of you like money? Yeah. Okay, now how many of you with your hands up also like uh, babysitting small children? <laughs> if you raised your hands for both of those questions, you should know we're launching a really exciting ministry. Uh, it's called MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers, where every Thursday morning, moms with preschoolers are going to bring their kids, and we need people who can do childcare on Thursday mornings. It is a paid position. You will be paid hourly for the time that you spend taking care of the wonderful children of this church and also other folks in the community who may not already be members of this church. So if that sounds like something you'd be interested in, or maybe you even just need a place to volunteer like because you're part of a program that requires volunteer hours, please pick up your phone this week sometime between Monday and Thursday. Just call the front desk, tell them you're interested, we'll get your basic information, be back in touch with you. That number should be 836-3236, but it's, it's right at the bottom of our webpage. Just, just pull it up, find it, give us a call. We can't wait to hear from you. Now, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word. It's, it's deeper than we can fathom. It's wider than we can see across. It's higher than the heavens. Lord, we come acknowledging our great need. Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. Lord, uh, I confess my own weakness that Compared to the need that's in this church in front of me today, the best I have is a few loaves and a few fishes. Come and multiply it to the need. Let everyone who comes hungry leave full, not because I'm great, but because you're the great teacher. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was a young Christian and I was kind of curious about how I should grow in my faith, a lot of the best advice that I got was, go and read Christian books other than the Bible. Anyone ever got that advice? I, 
I loved and hate talking with people about Christian books because people who like to read often get really excited to talk with me and they're like, oh my gosh, I love C.S. Lewis or Rick Warren or Stephen Furtick. And that's the part where I start to blush because a lot of the Christian books that I like to read are really, really old and esoteric. So I'm like, oh man, there's this dude from the fourth century named Evagrius of Pontus. He's awesome. Or there's this medieval book, we don't, it was anonymous, it's called The Cloud of Unknowing. That one hits hard. And at that point, the person I'm talking to usually excuses themselves to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and sometimes they come back. Sometimes they come back. <laughs> but if I'm being honest, that's, it's often these really old books where I go to find folks who challenge me and my faith. And I think in particular of one uh, early Christian monk who was kind of a big deal when Christian monasticism was just becoming a thing. His name was John of Lycopolis. And he's known, if you pick up a book called The Lives of the Desert Fathers, he's, he's one of the standout characters in the book. And he's known as somebody who was like healing the sick and prophesying and just really generally exemplifying a powerful Christian life. So folks wonder, how did John of Lycopolis become who he was? And there's a story about John in another early Christian writer named John Cashin, who talks about when John left his position of some prominence in a big city and moved to the desert to become a monk for the first time. And John, who was the sort of elite Greek-speaking guy, found a spiritual father from sort of a much lower social class than him, uh, whose name was Abba Pombo. So if any of you are looking for boy, uh, boys' names for your next child, I recommend Pombo. But this is what Pombo said to John, because he knew that for a guy coming from the city who was sort of a big deal, the, one of the virtues he needed to attain as a Christian was the virtue of humility. So he said, okay, John, this is the first thing you're gonna do. So Pombo walks over to his woodpile, grabs a rotten stick, sticks it upright in the sand, gives John a bucket, and says, okay, go haul water and keep watering this stick until it sprouts. Bear in mind, this is the desert in Egypt, and the nearest water is two miles away. So for a year, what John does is walk back and forth on this four-mile round trip, dumping bucket after bucket after bucket onto this rotten stick, until finally John just exemplifies the true virtue of humility, and Pombo says, all right, you're done. Let's move on to the next lesson, at which point John ran away. No. Uh, Look, I'm not saying that that kind of sometimes spiritual masochism is necessary for all of us to grow in the faith. If your small group leader looks at you and says, here, uh, take this Nalgene bottle and run to Lake Michigan and bring it back for me, please let me know. I'd like to have a talk with that small group leader. But there is something really profound that that story illustrates, which is that our salvation, what it takes to cultivate the soul of a Christian disciple, takes serious, sometimes really, really uncomfortable work. And that's the heart of Philippians chapter 2, 12 and 13. But before we go there, let's figure out what exactly we mean when we're talking about salvation, the salvation that we're supposed to be working out in fear and in trembling. If I could just give you one biblical story that I think illustrates pretty naturally the nature of Christian salvation, it would, uh, it would be a story from Joshua chapter 2 and chapter 6 in the Old Testament. It's the story of the siege and capture of Jericho and of a couple people who survive it, especially a young woman, a prostitute named Rahab. The Israelites, they're coming out of Egypt, 
It's time to enter the promised land. They're sick of wandering around in the desert, but the first obstacle on the way into the promised land is this big city called Jericho, high walls. So Joshua sends out a couple spies to get inside the city walls, figure out what it's like. The spies enter the city, and folks from the city realize what they're there about, so they start chasing them. So, I mean, just, just picture a scene from an action movie. These, these guys are doing parkour, ducking and weaving, trying to find a way to get back to Joshua safely, and suddenly they see a woman motioning to them, come here, come here. So they duck into her house, she slams the door, and they tell her what's going on. We're here from the Israelites. God's giving us this land. Everything that you think you know, the city that you were raised in is about to be destroyed, overthrown, wiped clean, in the judgment and justice of God. But if you, if you sp spare our lives, you hide us, we make it back to Joshua, you can be saved too. You don't have to die when the whole city is overthrown. So Rahab says, yep, sounds like a pretty good deal to her. She helps the spies sneak back out of the city. They run away to Joshua. And then eventually, the Israelites do come. The walls collapse. And the only people who are spared are Rahab, and the members of her family who she's invited to share her house. It's the only place in the city that's saved. That's a pretty good summary of the gospel. All of us live in a city that's about to be destroyed. That city is the world. Does that sound a little bit dark, a little bit bleak? The justice of God can be a tough pill for Americans like us to swallow, but I just encourage you to step back and think about it for a bit, however you feel about that idea. Wherever you or I stand politically today, it's very likely that at some point in the last year, we have looked at the state of civilization around us and gone, woof, is this really going to endure? We see so much evil and iniquity in the world, or we see our own societal norms kind of breaking down, and we think, this, this thing is looking shaky. It might collapse under its own weight. And it's not even that bad here, really, when you take like global and historical perspective. I mean, right now, think about a country like Mozambique. Mozambique, a country of about 30, 31 million. Of that 30, 31 million, two million are orphans. And many of them right now are being orphaned and assaulted by wandering groups of terrorists in the north part of the country so that these Christian aid organizations in the south of the country are just being overwhelmed by these small children who have walked hundreds of kilometers through the bush, who have seen their families killed in front of their very eyes, and they now show up basically as traumatized as anyone you've ever seen who like survived the trenches in World War I. These are kids with a thousand yard stare who can't talk, who are just like ready to collapse. Now, it's a situation like that that you need to bear in mind when you remember that God is a God of justice and sometimes, yes, a God of wrath. God has established a time when he's going to judge the world. That's Acts 17. And Psalm 8 and 9, uh, Psalm 9 verses 8 and 9 promises us that God is the one who rules the world with justice and he judges the people with equity and especially that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. So if you ever are tempted to think that the justice and wrath of God is inappropriate or like some sort of overreach on petty slights, just remember the full scale of human horror that many people endure every day and that it's the love of God that refuses to let that kind of torment that's visited upon his people go unpunished. True evil demands true justice. Okay, but then messengers come to us in the midst of this dark and broken world. Messengers show up and they say, this is how you can be saved from destruction. When the city falls, you don't have to die. There's a way out. 
the folks who come to, to Rahab in Jericho are folks who say, there's this guy named Joshua. And by the way, remember that the Greek translation of Joshua, the version of the Old Testament that the apostles were usually reading, is Jesus. It's not a mistake that Jesus' name in Greek is Jesus. There's this announcement that Jesus is coming, and when he comes, he will come as a judge, but he wants you to be saved. So, all of us in this room who have come to faith in Christ, we've accepted that message at one point in our lives. And for us, the church is the house that we enter, and the church is the house that we now invite the world around us to enter too, so that they can be saved too. Because everyone who enters the house of the church will be saved on the day of judgment. And when the day of judgment comes, all of us will spend our lives together, engrafted into the whole people of God, living according to his ways. But this is the question, especially for all of us today who are Christians. At what point is someone like Rahab actually saved? Is she saved at the moment she welcomes the spies and agrees with their message? Or is she saved only, ultimately, when the Jericho's walls come tumbling down and the world around her collapses in fire and smoke, but she and her family escape? It's kind of both and. But what that story reminds us who are Christians is that if we want to begin in salvation and continue until ultimate salvation, the price that we have to pay is we have to stay inside our house, the house of the church. If, she, if Rahab had gone back to the city, then her own blood would have been on her head, is the way that Joshua says it. So what is the Christian's duty? What is our role? What's our job in working out our own salvation? That's what Philippians 2.13 is all about. Well, the, the first thing to say is that it's pretty easy to get confused if we look at this text and say, what's my job in salvation? Because it seems like there are two people working to accomplish our salvation. On the one hand, it's, Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. But on the other hand, God is the one who's at work in you, an inmate, to desire and to act. So, who saves us, God or ourselves? And the answer is yes, both of us. Uh, Christian salvation begins when our human work, our human effort becomes energized by the life-giving power of God. Now, I'll put it this way. How many of you woke up this morning and flipped on a light switch or a lamp? Most of us. How does a light bulb work? A light bulb, I mean, it's a filament or a diode these days, but it doesn't light itself. It needs a current, it needs a charge. It needs some form of power other than itself flowing into it to make it work the way that it's intended to work. So when all of us come to Christ, essentially we become light bulbs that are now illuminated by his divine current. We're the diode, Christ is the electricity, and suddenly when we're given life, new life and power by Christ, we begin to shine in the way that we were always created and intended to. A favorite text from this church, if you're gonna memorize one Bible passage to understand what High Point Church is about, I might, I might recommend 2 Peter chapter one. In 2 Peter one, Peter the apostle says that God has given us everything that we need for a godly life. He says that we have become participants in God's divine nature, but then he goes on to say, because we're participants in God's divine nature, we need to make every effort. 
God is doing it all and we are doing it all simultaneously. The power of God isn't just something that like pulls us out of the world. The power of God that's given to us is power for living in the world, continuing to work out our salvation day by day, moment by moment, breath by breath. So, but before I kind of charge ahead and describe what we're actually supposed to do with the power of God, I want to say a bit about what specifically the power of God in us produces. Um, Before I moved to Australia in 2017, I used to really enjoy going out for lunch and having a burger and fries. Kind of a lowbrow thing, but I, I mean, I enjoy a really good burger. And for me, the fries used to be almost as important as the burger. Anyone else like that? Yeah, but then I moved to Australia and I couldn't figure it out because most of the time if you ordered a burger in Australia, nobody even offered you fries. Or if they did, they were terrible. (laughs) They were so bad. Uh, So what happened to me over the course of four years is that my taste changed. I still enjoy a good burger, but I mean, you know, I want a good patty, good toppings, good bun, right kind of cheese. But now when I sit down in a restaurant and they say, do you want fries with that? I usually say no. And yes, everybody looks at me weird. I promise you I'm not a barbarian. I still enjoy cheesy tater tots, but French fries just don't do it for me in the way that they used to. That's kind of what happens to us when we become a Christian. It's really, really hard to change our nature and what we desire. It's really, really hard to become the sort of people who no longer want the delicious, savory, salty foods that are going to blow us up until you'd have to like roll me from here to the door to get me out. But this is the work of God in us. Suddenly, we start to desire things that we didn't desire naturally. This is what Paul says in Romans 1, basically is that human beings, by nature, desire the wrong thing, and so they end up doing the wrong thing. Left to ourselves, we want things that will hurt ourselves and the people around us. Given enough time, all of us will desire something that will introduce more death, destruction, corruption into the world if we just followed our innate passions and desires. And this is a real problem because what Romans 2 basically says is that human beings don't possess the power to overcome those desires infallibly. Maybe some of the time they can like really strive that if they recognize when something is bad, but eventually there's gonna come a point in time when even if we know it's bad, we're gonna want it bad enough that we're gonna do it anyway. Our inner toddler comes out. Okay, so now let's say, that with God's help, I want to do the right things. I recognize that some of my desires are twisted and that they're gonna cause uh, problems for other people and even for myself down the road, but I'm not sure how to do it. What exactly do I do now? We rely on the power of God to do the good things that we now desire. And one of the essential ways that we go about doing this is by practicing what the church often calls in shorthand form, spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are the good activities that start to stretch our capacity, that start to stretch us so that we become capable to receive more and more of God's own nature and power. And they're the sort of things that you generally would not desire unless God were around there helping you. I mean, do you ever like go to the gym and see people checking themselves out in the mirror? like figuring out where they look good, where they need a little more work. 
this is a kind of a good spiritual exercise for a Christian as long as it's motivated by desire to grow and not from like vanity or self-hatred. Uh, but the reason I, I talk about it as a trip to the gym is because the Christian life is a life where we all need to get a little bit comfortable being uncomfortable. The things that God is going to lead us to desire and the disciplines that he's gonna call us to practice will cost something. Christianity is difficult. If nobody's ever told you, surprise, like responding to the gospel sometimes might be easy. Like you feel that pang of compunction and you really decide, oh my gosh, that's the way the world is. That's who I am. That's who God is. I want in. But then once you're in, what do you do? You find that you're called to live as a part of God's people, separate from the world. You find, uh, you find that even though you came to Jesus and washed your sins away in baptism, you still really, 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 really want a lot of the things that Jesus says you shouldn't, and now you're called to find a way to go about overcoming it. Like, like God says to Cain when he's tempted to, to kill Abel, sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. Or the way Romans 8 says it, by the power of the Spirit, be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Anybody who's tried that for longer than 15 minutes knows how difficult it is. So get comfortable being uncomfortable. At some point, you're gonna feel like John wandering through the desert with a bucket of water on your back on a four-mile round trip, feeling like you're just doing this so you can go and dump yet another bucket of water onto that stupid dead stick over there, and what's gonna come of that? What I want to encourage you is that uh, the life of Christian discipleship sometimes is going to feel like that fruitless journey through the wilderness, but it's not actually fruitless. Some philosophers today will try to tell you, lean into the fruitlessness. If you ever had to like, take a philosophy course in college, you may have heard uh, there was a French philosopher named Camus, and he wrote a book interpreting an old Greek myth called the myth of Sisyphus. And Sisyphus is a guy who the gods really didn't like, so they made him roll a giant rock up a hill for all eternity, and the second the rock would get to the top of the hill, Sisyphus could never keep it there, would always roll back down. And that was supposed to be like the ultimate torture. Your Christian life is not ultimate torture like that. I mean, what Camus said was that what you need to do is just lean into the struggle. The point isn't getting the rock there, the point is that you try. Christian life is not like that. You are not just trying for the sake of trying. You will actually accomplish something. But in order to actually accomplish something, to get the rock from the base of the mountain to the top and keep it there, you need to recognize that your power is insufficient, and so you need to go about doing and practicing specific things that are gonna turn you into the sort of person where your insufficient power aligns perfectly with God's all-sufficient power so that you become capable to receive and participate more and more in the divine nature. Because this is the mystery of growth in Christian salvation. And there is a certain point where we all come alive. And I imagine that most of us in this room who have responded to the gospel and have received Christ, many of us can probably point to the moment when it happened. It often comes with profound experience. But after that, we need to grow with respect to salvation, and the way we do it is spiritual discipline. So I'll just mention a couple. I mean, the key one, the one that I always point new believers to, is Bible study picking up your Bible and reading it and reading it until something clicks for you, something comes alive, you see something in a way that you didn't see it before, and something changes in the way that you see yourself in the world and the church. It's because in 2 Corinthians 3, when Paul is talking about what happens to Christians when they read the Bible, he says it's like, it's like seeing Jesus face to face, and when you see Jesus face to face, you naturally become more like who he is. 
But I also know that I've talked to a lot of Christians who are like, I cannot read this thing anymore. I open it up, I flip open the pages, and it's like, try, it's like the reading equivalent of trying to eat a bowl of uncooked oatmeal. There's just, there's no taste, there's no flavor, the texture's awful, it makes my mouth dry, what do I do? And the answer is, keep doing it. Keep pushing. Yeah. Even that experience where you feel like it's futile is actually doing something for you. That's, that's one of those light and momentary troubles that's producing for you an eternal crown of glory. So keep doing it. How about another discipline? Prayer. <sighs> Anyone ever been to like a prayer conference? Man, the people who show up to those are the worst. Those are the people who just like seem to have never had a bad prayer day in their life. They get so excited about like entering into the throne room, seeing Jesus face to face. And most of us uh, Christian human beings in the room are like, sometimes I feel like I'm just throwing words at the ceiling, right? Again, prayer, when it's energized by the power of God, when you persist in it until your imperfect will and power becomes aligned with the power and the nature of God, becomes God pouring prayer out into you and returning it back to him. That's why the prayers of a righteous person are, are effective and prevail. That's why prayer isn't just something that like, accomplishes something. Prayer is not just the means by which we throw up our requests to God so that our lives or the lives of the people around us get better. Prayer is what happens to Moses in the wilderness when he enters the tent of meeting where the glory of God resides physically and he is physically changed by encountering the presence of God so that when he returns, he has to put a veil on his face so that all the Israelites aren't freaked out by how shiny he is. That's what prayer does to us in our interior spiritual person. When we encounter God in prayer, we take on his likeness in the same way that when, when we encounter the face of Christ in the Bible, we become more and more who Christ is. Okay, here's another one. If you weren't discouraged by the first two, wait for this one. Think back to Rahab. She gets the offer, you can be saved, stay in the house. But the offer isn't just for her. The offer is also for her family. Anyone that she can persuade to enter her house with her is gonna be saved on the day of judgment. How many of you really enjoy evangelism? Actually telling people, hey, this is the gospel, this is what's happening. There's going to be a day of destruction and judgment, but you can be saved if you enter into. I, look, I don't know about you, but it's not fun to get that blank look of incomprehension where that person who thinks they know you and maybe even like you starts to hear what you really think about the world and decides, you know, maybe that person's just a work friend. Maybe we don't need to hang out anymore. But I also know that it's really, really fun and exciting when you start to go through the process of explaining who Jesus is and how Jesus has affected your life, and people start to find that the Holy Spirit is at work in them, and they start to respond, and they're interested almost like involuntarily because something is kind of coming alive in them. Those conversations are so exciting, but they don't come easily. Here's the big point. When it comes to like prayer, Bible study, fasting, joining together as a people of God in worship, all of those things where we encounter God and God stretches us and grows us up in our salvation, all of those things are really our work of cooperating with God, not necessarily our work of just exerting our very best human efforts until we're like so clenched down physically and emotionally that we just can't stand up anymore under our own power. 
We have an interior battle to win. The way Galatians 5 puts it is that the Holy Spirit who's in us starts to actively desire things that our flesh really doesn't desire. And the converse is true. Even once you're a Christian, your flesh, your human body is going to want things that are bad for you as a Christian. And so you are caught every day in this struggle between two competing desires, and both of them come from inside you. And so your challenge as a Christian is to do the things actively every day that is going to increase the odds that the spirit wins and fleshly desires lose. And that's why Christianity is difficult, because it's difficult but not impossible. Left to ourselves, we can't beat the desires of our natural bodies. But when the Holy Spirit in us, the Spirit of Jesus, is helping us, then when we cooperate with that Spirit, then we find the truth of the saying that we are more than conquerors through Christ. Even if that's true, I'm willing to bet that there are some of you who still feel daunted especially those of you who might be in one of those seasons in your Christian life where you just feel like you're kind of pushing and pushing and pushing on a locked door. So I want to give you a little bit more good news. You don't have to do it on your own. God gives all of us what I would call Christian ministers to help us, to guide us on our way of salvation. Um, I, I don't know about any of you, but I'm a big picture guy. I can get swamped by details, get bored and discouraged by details, but when I can look at like a big complex issue at the highest level of generalization and see the way that the big ideas and the pieces fit together, that, I kind of geek out on that. Um, that became a problem for me at one really important point in my life. When I was in graduate school, I had a doctoral advisor, his name's Carl, and if ever there was a guy who reveled in the minutia, it was Carl. Like for me, big picture, I love grand ideas. For him, I would hand him something, and if it had too many typos, he could not read it. Didn't matter how good my thinking was or the idea was, it would just get kicked right back. And I'm like, no, can we really talk about this? And he would say, no, I can't see past the typos. And that was so profoundly frustrating, but in the course of time, Carl's insistence that I learn to become a cleaner writer made me a far better writer. So that now if somebody gives me something to proofread, I can do it just about as well as like, anybody who works for a publishing house could. That did not come naturally. That was excruciatingly painful. It was really, really good for me. So don't overlook what's implicit in this passage. Don't just focus on the fact that God is calling you and me and all of us to work out our salvation. Recognize that when Paul talks about us working out our salvation, he couches it under this one big idea, obeying him. It's only because the Philippians trust Paul and are willing to obey Paul's guidance that they can have and really hope for any sort of success in their own attempts to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. Now, obedience is a tough word. If I was John of Lycopolis and Pombo told me to go make a four-mile round trip hauling water to dump on a rotten stick, I might have told him to pound sand. See ya, I'm out of here. Um, and right now, we live at an age where people in power, including spiritual leaders, regularly abuse that power. It's a problem that the institutional church is starting to grapple with. We're not all the way there yet. Folks are learning to put in place safeguards, but so I just want to say, uh, 
whenever someone in power looks at you and tells you to do something that seems like it might be more in their best interest than in yours, that's a time for a red flag to go up. That's a time to go look at somebody else and say, ah, I'm kind of concerned about this. Can you give me your perspective? But at the same time, recognize that when Paul and people around you say, obey me, if they're doing it in the right way, they're not on a power trip. Paul thinks that he is giving wise counsel that's in the best interest of all of the Christians in Philippi. And remember the broader context when Paul says, obey me. Just a few verses ago, when Paul was talking about who Jesus was and how Jesus related to the Father, he said that Jesus is the key example of Christian obedience. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So obedience is not optional for a Christian. Obedience is necessary for every Christian who wants to fully embody the character of their master. Okay, so if obedience is necessary, if it's part of becoming Jesus, then how do we go about finding a trustworthy minister who can look at us and say, try this, and we say, yes. I would encourage you to look at Luke chapter six, beginning in verse 37. There's a, there's a couple verses back to back that almost seem like they don't belong together. Jesus says to the disciples, first off, don't judge lest you be judged. Don't condemn anybody, otherwise you'll be condemned. But then in the same breath, he kind of shifts and says, every disciple is gonna end up like their master. And then he says, watch out for blind guides. The sort of folks who tell you they're gonna lead you in the way, but they end up leading you and them and you fall into a pit. And then right after that, he says, be really, really careful about trying to perform eye surgery on somebody else until you've pulled that plank out of your own eye, right? So this is the logic here. Every disciple will become like their master. When you are looking for a Christian teacher at some point in your life, now or in the future, Look for somebody who you want to be like and look for somebody who, to the best of your ability, seems to resemble and exemplify the character of Jesus. You'll be like the people who teach you, for better and for worse. Beware the blind guides who are going to fall into the pits. It's up to us, all of us, to be aware that there are bad teachers who will lead us in the pits. And at the same time, teachers, especially those of you in this room today who are considering Christian ministry in one form or another, remember how dangerous it is to try and perform spiritual eye surgery on somebody else until you've actually reckoned with the weight of sin in your own life. It does take a high calling and a high degree of maturity to faithfully fulfill that office. But also remember the first couple of verses that I mentioned. Another one of the great temptations when we're dealing with spiritual leadership is to judge and condemn to look at people and say, ah, I don't really need to obey that. I don't need to follow that person. One reason you can trust people like Paul is because Paul's already told you in Philippians chapter one that it would be way better for him personally for him to die, depart, be with Christ. But he's sticking around, and here's why he's sticking around. Because it's good for you. Because you need him way more than he needs you. It would have been way easier for Jesus not to have taken on the nature of slave, not to have descended, not to have submitted himself to death on a cross. Way better for him personally, but he did it for us. Worship team, you can uh, start to come back. So, every single Christian, every single one of us is in the process of being saved. 
And we still, all of us, need to go about working out our salvation in fear and trembling. So we have to commit ourselves actively to the life of discipleship. And we all also have to commit ourselves to working with spiritual teachers, spiritual ministers, the sort of folks who will come alongside us and help us to practice our spiritual disciplines more effectively. This is what I want to encourage all of you today, especially those of you who feel like maybe you're hitting the wall. Don't grow weary in doing good. If, at, if you persist, then at the proper time, you will reap a harvest. That's Galatians 6 verse 9. Whenever you get tired, whenever you get weary, whenever you decide maybe this Christianity thing isn't panning out for you, Galatians 6 9 is an awesome place to run. Remember that your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed. So don't stop doing the hard work of hauling the water. Don't get distracted by the stuff, the sin that's still out there waiting for you in the city. All you have to do is poke your head outside and you could run back to the world. Don't do it. Persist. So if you've been lax in Bible study and prayer, then go now with new zeal to pursue those disciplines. And if you do find that you need a little bit of help, I would encourage you If you want to learn to read your Bible better, next Sunday morning, 9 a.m. in the Micah Center, attend the Bible study class, the manuscript study class. If you want to grow in your prayer life, join with some other people who are doing it. On Wednesday nights here from 6.45 to 7.45, we have a church prayer meeting. Finally, I don't take it for granted that uh, all of you in this room today would say that you have decided to accept Jesus' call of discipleship, that you want to be like Jesus and not like the world, that you don't want to continue to live out the, the desires that you find in your flesh, that you recognize the way that you're hurting yourself and the people around you, but you find that you just can't stop. Jesus is the answer. He is the one who says that you can be saved from the judgment of the world around you and from that power, that negative power in you that keeps pulling you towards the wrong things. Jesus wants you to be saved, so this is all you have to do. You have to ask him for forgiveness. If you confess your sins, the Bible says, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to purify you from all unrighteousness. And when you do that, all you have to do is agree, yes, I want to live my life in the future in the way that Jesus lived his life. And if you do that, knowing that he's the one who's helping you at every step of the way, you will find what this Bible text calls salvation. So if I could have everybody bow their heads and close their eyes, please. If that sounds like you today, if that's something that you want and you want to talk to somebody about it, please just raise your hand. I'm kind of scanning around the room looking for you. Yeah, I saw that hand. Yep, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. Okay, there's a good number of you. All of you can raise, uh, lower your hands. You can open your eyes. If you raised your hand, this is all I'd like you to do. There's a phone number up here on the screen. At some point today, I'd encourage you to do it really soon. Just text the word FAITH, F-A-I-T-H, to that number. It's gonna go into a list, and we're gonna reach out to you very soon, like in the next 36 to 48 hours, just to talk with you and to start to help you understand what kind of decision you're making. Let's pray briefly and then we'll turn it back to the worship band. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift of teaching and the teachers who have led me, who I can look at and and trust their opinion and word even more than I trust myself. 
But I thank you especially that when you call me, you don't leave me alone, but you keep walking with me and helping me every step of the way. I pray that for every one of us in this room, we would find you near to us, helping us, encouraging us, empowering us to live lives that are pleasing to you so that one day we'll stand with you and see our salvation perfectly completed in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.